Good morning, church. It is my seventh Thanksgiving to be with you, and we are very grateful. And I'm grateful that um, I didn't repeat what I did the first Thanksgiving, which is to kick a pumpkin right off of the stage. So I've learned to dance around the pumpkins. This is our stewardship season. As you have been hearing, I hope you've been inspired and been encouraged by what the Lord is doing uh, with your gifts through this church here and around the world. And I want to tell you that your leaders are leading the way. We have 100% commitment from all of our active officers who've turned in their pledges. And I would encourage the rest of you to follow suit. We minister to about 6,000 people per year on this campus and, and uh, 10,000 setups in our building. You heard just a little while ago, 1,800 kids alone in our uh, recreation ministry, 75% of them not from the church. And, uh, but 50% of us contribute financially. So uh, you want to be a part of this mission. Don't miss out on the good things that God is doing here. And uh, thank you all so much for our elder, Shang Zhou, who gave his own testimony of the difference that the Lord has made in his life uh, through years of giving by faith. So I hope this marks a new Uh, turning over a new leaf for you in participating in and showing your love for the mission at Second Prayers. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. It's a long passage today, but we do believe that it is important to read publicly the Word of God. So I'll read the whole passage from 1-7 to 2-15. You can find that on page 793 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. Zechariah, as we learned last week, is a contemporary of Haggai, whom we studied a few weeks before, and both of them sent back to Jerusalem to encourage the people to, for, to uh, complete what they had begun. They had begun to rebuild the temple, the church in the center of their city, but they had, they had a little opposition and they stopped. They started using their funds for themselves instead, and they built Uh, bigger and bigger houses, even elaborately decorated houses. And God sends these prophets back to them to say that they must complete the work, not because he needs a building, but because he is very graciously given to them as he has given to us, a location in which we can weekly repeat the story of redemption, have him push the reset button on our lives, reorient us to what is true and to send us back out again as missionaries into our city and our world. So Zechariah writing some 500 years before the birth of Jesus anticipates Jesus and you'll hear it even as we read this passage beginning in one seventeen, uh, one, uh, chapter 1 verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Idu, saying, I saw in the night. Now, we're going to study eight 
night visions of Zechariah. These are dreams, so they're full of imagery. And you who've studied Revelation with me are used to this kind of imagery that we have to unpack. And when we do, it's full of blessing. So here's the first night vision. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? He said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire and all around declares the Lord and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad <laughs> as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. And shall be my people. And I shall dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah 
as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful things in this portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. God's people said together, amen. All of the most serious injuries that occurred to my children occurred under my alert supervision. All the emergency runs, all of them, while I was in charge. One of the worst, or the worst in terms of trauma, was to one of our daughter's eyes. She and her twin sister were with me. We were giving their mother a little respite so she could shop and have some alone time. And, and um, I was looking at something else. I heard a blood-curdling scream. I turned around and I saw that my twins were fighting over a panda pillow that was attached to a hanger which had a circle hook on the end of it. They were pulling it each against the other, but the hook had upended under, it ended up under the eyelid of one of the twins. And her twin, uh, bigger than she was, was pulling with all her might. Somehow got it released. The eye swelled up like a golf ball, screaming, blood everywhere, and a very alert, a very attentive management system from that store. Paying careful attention to me, helping us in every way. And uh, it looked awful. They helped us get to the car. We jumped in the car. We loaded her up. We headed to the children's hospital. And we were screaming to the Lord for mercy because we were convinced she had lost her vision. Well, long story short, she had not lost her vision and she only, only nicked a tear duct. It didn't even affect the eyeball. Why did you groan like you did? Why did we scream like we did? Why were we panicked as we were? Why did the, all of the management staff of this store come? Because the eye is a precious thing. The pupil of the eye, the center of the eye, the apple of the eye is a precious thing. We give our best attention to protecting ourselves. To we spend lots of money to correct it when it's uh, when it's uh, not uh, in good health. We we're terrified when we think we're losing our vision. We fight. We long. We cry. We wail for the apple of the eye. And God calls his church, the apple of his eye. He commits himself. He speaks with great urgency. 
He, he, he sends his prophets. He ultimately laid down the life of his son for the apple of his eye. It's not just here in Zechariah. It's also Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, Psalm 17, verse 8, when he calls us the apple of his eye. Therefore, he pledges himself to our restoration and gives his best for it. He pledges himself, gives him his best for our defense, and he pledges himself, he gives his best for our prosperity, the prosperity of the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, this very, this incredible idea, this teaching, this image that comes in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. Here we have to unpack a little bit, decode some of the imagery so that you can appreciate what the Lord is saying. And uh, here's this, the main image is the myrtle tree. Myrtle tree is a, a figure of Israel. Myrtle trees are common in and around Jerusalem. Never grow over eight feet tall. They're small, they're diminutive in size. But they're evergreens. And then what's more, they have a, a little white flower that when it's crushed, produces a pungent fragrance. You can see why it's a symbol of Israel. It grows also in the valleys, uh, places where other trees can't make it. It represents Israel because it's small. Israel's always been a small nation. It, it represents Israel because no matter how much persecution the Jewish people have received, and they're receiving especially now, no matter how much they receive, they continue on and thrive and prosper and when, even when crushed become a blessing. And yet you begin to see even in that image of the myrtle tree long before the birth of Jesus, there's the image of Christ. The one who is forever, the one who came as a humble man, came to a small place. And when he was crushed, it was through his crushing that he has made the sweet aroma of the gospel available to us. But I, I want you to notice something else in this passage. You have these horses there, uh, red and brown or sorrel and white. And these horses are God's reconnaissance troops. He's, he sent them out and they're supposed to go behind enemy lines, which is uh, especially effective in times of war. And these, these horses go behind enemy lines. God's reconnaissance troops know no boundaries. And they come back and they bring a report to the Lord of how things are going on the earth. And they, they say that all is at peace. But what they mean is that all of the dominant geopolitical powers are at peace. But the angel of the Lord speaks up. These are lower ranking angels apparently. But the angel of the Lord speaks up. The angel of the Lord in the Bible appears when he speaks to Abraham and announces at the trees of Mamre that that Abraham is going to be the father of Isaac, the covenant son. And then he shows up in Joshua and uh, announces that he is the commander of the Lord's armies. He shows up in other places. And in each place, the angel of the Lord shows up. He is, uh, he is uh, attributed with all of the uh, distinctives of deity. He is identified as Jehovah. 
And appearing as he does is one with whom you can have a conversation that you can see. You notice his appearance. He's historically understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So let's put it all together. Here's this, here's this, uh, this myrtle tree of Israel. And, and while the, the, the major forces of the world are at peace, this little tree, God's people, are being crushed. They're being abused. And God said, now I've disciplined them for 70 years, but you've gone too far. You, have, you are oppressing them. You're taking advantage of them. The angel of the Lord speaks up and says, this is not right. The angel of the Lord speaks to the Lord and says, this is not right. When will you have mercy on these people? Now, what do you have when you put that together? You have Christ advocating for, pleading with, complaining to the Lord God on behalf of his people. How long will you have them suffer like this? Have mercy, O Lord. Do you hear that? You heard it in Habakkuk. You heard Habakkuk complaining to the Lord for his people. You hear other prophets complaining to the Lord for his people. But here is Christ so identified with the apple of his eye. He comes to the Lord and he says, enough is enough. God doesn't argue with him. He immediately does what? Speaks comforting words. Gracious and comforting words. The complaint results in comfort for God's people. Do you realize that when Jesus Christ becomes your Lord and Savior. That God not only loves you, he likes you. Do you realize that Jesus is for you? And because he is for you, God is for you. Because Jesus is for you, God loves you no matter what. That Jesus is at the right hand of the Father with his five bleeding wounds constantly interceding for you. Have mercy, O oh Lord, have mercy on them. I know they're wayward. I know they're stingy. I know they're stiff-necked. I know they're hard-headed. I know they cut people with their words. I know that they have, they have sin in their heart. I know they lust after they have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I know, Lord, have mercy. Jesus constantly interceding. And because it's Jesus, his son, God always answers with mercy. As often as you repent, you will always find mercy. As the apple of his eye, he is committed to your restoration. As the apple of his eye, he is committed to your defense. You see in verses 18 to 21, these four horns 
the horn on a on an aggressive animal is his is his powerful weapon. And so it's used in the Bible to describe power, power for good or power for ill. The four horns represent the governments, the oppressing nations that have done damage to God's people through the centuries. And then God, because he loves his people, answers with power to defend them. But you say, I'm not really inspired here because he says he sends craftsmen against these four-horned beasts, verse 20. But you mustn't think of a craftsman as uh, Bob Vila or uh, Chip Gaines. This is not just a, a fine carpenter. This is a blacksmith. This is a craftsman with a sledgehammer. Think more Thor than Chip. And here, God sends these his craftsmen to destroy the nations. Are those nations around any longer? Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome. Where are they? They were called the eternal kingdoms. The leaders of those nations, Egypt, they were the gods. They were the chief of gods. Where are they? Crushed by God's blacksmiths. And what is that, what is that hammer? What is that, that sledgehammer? It is the word of God. It is the word of God that, that Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, breaks rocks into pieces. In the New Testament, it's that word that Paul says demolishes arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God and to take captive every thought and to make it obedient to him. The word of God is his weapon. The word of God is his hammer to break hard hearts and to undo all those powers that seems so oppressive and insurmountable. That means that the most strategic investment you can make with your life, with your brain, with your money, with your efforts is in anything that prospers the word of God. You know, in the 1990s, the early 1990s, when I began uh, ministry, uh, we were told that uh, it was likely that we would not have the Bible translated into every language until the year 2150. But now because of the advancement of technology, experts say that we should have the Bible translated or at least in progress in every language, in every known tongue by 2030. Within our lifetime, many of us here, within our lifetime, we could see the Bible translated into every language. Don't you want to have been a part of investing in that? You're part of it as you give to the church, as you give, especially the missions fund. We have uh, 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 the Brileys, for instance, David and Joyce Briley in Indonesia 
who announced not long ago that the, that the New Testament had been translated into the tongue of the Bowsy people. And uh, they said that when they brought the New Testament into the village, the people were jumping up and down with their New Testaments, praising God for his provision. They're almost done with the Old Testament. That's just one of many languages. And we have a part in that. And then to push it a bit farther, to make the word of God a priority here means supporting the work of mission worldwide and the preaching of the word. And, and, and here I want, to, I want to repent of something that I've been all too guilty of for many years of my ministry. I've been, I've been so uh, engaged in telling everyone your, that everyone's calling is important and from the Lord. And that is true. Every one of your callings, your vocation is ordained by the Lord. And it is important to, to bring the Lordship of Christ to bear in that vocation. But God has used the ministry of the preaching and teaching of God's word peculiarly to advance his kingdom throughout the ages. And what I've been guilty of is not encouraging more of you to go into word-centered ministry. Personally. To go to, to, to make that your vocation. Or at least your avocation. We desperately need more ministers of the gospel. We desperately need more women who are teaching the word of God. We need more missionaries who take that around the world. We need them. And if you're looking for something to do where you're a part of something that is much, much bigger than yourself, I invite you to come. Everybody says the work of the minister is... is, difficult and you're right it is it is a really hard job my mother cried when I said I was going to be a minister I hope for so much better for you she said it's hard but aren't those the most satisfying things aren't the the most difficult trying challenging uh, the, the, the most, uh, the, the, most uh, the, the things that demand our greatest perseverance, aren't those the things that are most satisfying? Don't you want at your, the end of your days to say, no matter what you've done, to say, I gave it my best. I was part of a mission that was infinitely bigger than myself and bore eternal fruit There's nothing like it. Come on in. We have a seminary right here. We started one. No matter if you're called, if you think you're called or not, for $100 a credit hour, you can take seminary classes. If you have time, you should. Everyone, everyone, my not-so-humble opinion, should give at least some thought to how else could I serve in getting out, personally getting out the ministry of the word of God. Werner Herzog, famous filmmaker, said a number of years ago when somebody asked him, how does it feel to make movies that change the world? He said, movies are nothing. 
They're not significant. And then for some reason he turned to, he, he said to orator, he said orators are the most effective people in the world. Orators change the world. They capture the imagination of a population and change things. Hey, let me just give you an illustration of this. Uh, I know we're a little long on time, but look, we've done everything in this service conceivably possible today. And I'm the last one with 15 minutes to preach. So let me tell you what happened this week. We have our people who, who have started volunteering to go into Orange Mound and work with Hanley School. And this week, they were in lockdown because they were shooting in the neighborhood around. So they turned out the lights, they moved it into the center of the library and they prayed and uh, no one was hurt, but it was a tense moment. They ranged from people in their 30s to 86 or so. I called every one of them because these are the things that keep me up at night when I think we're asking, we're trying to, to lean into the darkness, we're going to the greatest needs of this city and it's dangerous. I called every one of them to thank them, to thank my, to thank the troops. Do you know not one of them said, well, we're doing it there for you, for you, for you, George. We were there for you, George. Thank you for thanking us. Not one of them said that. They were there for the Lord. Every one of them courageous. And, and, and what was it that moved them to do that? I share my opinions all the time. Nobody listens to my opinions. But when people hear the word of God, they do crazy things. Like going into the places of greatest need. Like answering the call to go into these distressed neighborhoods. Like answering the call to go over to, into uh, international missions. To plant churches. To become pastors. To become teachers of the word. They do crazy things, not because a person has so much influence in his, in his opinions, but because the word does it. And the word, that word undoes nations. Well, chapter two, verses one to 15 is not a vision, so it doesn't need as much explaining. And I'll just tell you the the big idea is that as the, as the angel or man tried to measure it, God said, don't try to measure it because what I'm going to do is a lot bigger than this city. It's a lot bigger than this temple. I'm going to cause my kingdom to go throughout the earth. It will have no walls. It will have, uh, it, it will have no battlements. It will be protected by my angels and it will go forth in my mission until every tribe, tongue, people, and nation bow the knee to my son, Jesus Christ, who is riding that red horse. He is the one who is undoing the kingdoms of this world by his blood-bought sacrifice and rising in victory over it. Let me get you this bit of encouragement before we leave. A few years ago, I became aware of a book by Mosab Hassan Youssef. 
called son of Hamas. He's the son of Sheikh Youssef, one of the founders of Hamas. Book was published maybe 10 years or so ago. He's recently added a new chapter to it because of recent events. Musab Hassan Youssef, from his earliest days, aspired to be a terrorist, just like his dad. He thought that would be the most effective thing he could do for his Palestinian neighbors. He could be a terrorist. But then he understood from God's word that, uh, that the son of God came to bring peace. And that idea crushed him and converted him. He joined a church. Eventually, he found himself in a jail cell with an Israeli. Both of them put in jail. The Israeli was put in jail for disobeying orders to put down an intifada. And Yusuf put in jail because he had been writing letters to his father trying to witness to him about Christ and reconcile with him. So he was put in jail too as a terrorist. And in this jail cell, the Israeli and the Palestinian were singing hymns together like Barnabas and Paul. They were both Christians. Where did they learn those hymns? By singing them together in the church they were members of. They were both members of the same church. They heard the gospel every week of the, of the power of Christ's word, the power of Christ's sacrifice to break down dividing walls, to bring peace with God and peace with one another and to change nations. And there they were testifying the unthinkable former terrorist and a Jewish Israeli, both coming, becoming one new person in Christ and able to worship together in jail because of their worship together in their local church. Only God can write those kinds of stories. He's writing them here today. He writes them here every day of the week in this place and especially on Sundays. Let's give it our best and trust God for his mission to advance and change the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us to yourself and enabling us to answer your call. Oh, Lord Jesus, we surrender our gifts to you now and pray that you would multiply them for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.